This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. We don't typically do kind of a uh, an Advent series um, in more uh, more churches that follow the church calendar, higher church um, forms of worship typically do so. Uh, lower church, free church, uh, casual church kind of folk uh, typically don't do that kind of thing. Uh, they get nervous about anything that sort of sounds Roman Catholic or anything, so you don't do Advent. But So a lot of Protestants don't, a lot do, um, but we decided to do it this year. Advent simply means coming, uh, and so Advent marks the season of waiting, the season of anticipation for Christ. It is the, uh, it is the season of longing. It is uh, freshly fixing our hopes and our expectations on Him. And uh, so we're going to be talking about that each Sunday for the next four Sundays and tie it to his first coming, uh, his presence with us, and and longing for his second coming as well. And uh, the scripture we read this morning is typically a first Sunday of Advent uh, passage, uh, the uh, uh, the Isaiah passage. So we'll look at that in just a minute. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to theme this uh, peace. And so we're going to talk each week uh, about peace, how Jesus uh, comes to bring peace, how he is the uh, Prince of Peace. And the central message of the Bible is the coming of Christ. And in one way, as we're going to see here this morning, I believe we could say the central message of the Bible is God initiating peace for those who are alienated and those who are broken and those who are in strife and division. It is Jesus coming to to bring peace. So this is a central message arguably the central message of all of Scripture. So what we're going to do today is unusual. I am not going to do a passage. I'm literally going to do the whole Bible. So we're going to start on page one, and we're going to finish in the last page of the Bible. Uh, Actually, we're not going to start on page one. We're going to start in Luke 2. So if you could turn there. We're going to start in Luke 2. Then we're going to go to the beginning of the Bible, and we're going to go all the way to the end. And we're going to look at how this theme of peace uh, plays out in the Scripture. Now, here's what I want to recommend if you don't have, you have a Bible on your phone, that's great. You can just turn that on. Um, if you don't have a Bible with you, uh, if you could grab one from under, because we're going to be looking at a lot of scriptures. So if you could grab one, there's a seat in the seat in front of you, there's a Bible. And as we're going, I'm going to be telling you the page number to look at. So you don't have to, if you don't know like Bible books and verses and what in the world are those people talking about, uh, I'm going to give you page numbers. So this first passage is on page 500. Go to page 500, and we're going to read a number of passages this morning about peace. So let's pray, and then we will, we will dig into this, uh, uh, this sort of Bible-a-thon uh, message about peace. Today we'll talk about the Prince of Peace. Lord, we posture ourselves today as those who need your word. God, we are in great need. We live by every word from you, and we are in great need today. We are a people who need uh, an experience of peace with you, an experience of peace with others, an experience of, uh, of peace with, uh, with those, both believers and unbelievers alike. We live in a war-torn world. We live in a world that is uh, threadbare in so many ways with so much division and hatred and harm, so much internal turmoil and despair, loneliness, and isolation in so many lives. Lord, we we need the Prince of Peace to come and rule our lives. And we, in this season of Advent, we thank you that you have come bringing peace, and we long for your return when all will be peace. So, Lord, speak to us by your Holy Spirit. You are the Spirit of peace. We pray that you would speak to us today in this manner. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so what we're going to do today is we're going to start in this passage, Luke 2. I'm going to give you the 30,000-foot version, and then in the coming weeks, we're going to be on the ground talking very specifically about how peace uh, applies in our personal lives in, in, in very practical and specific ways. But today will be a, an overview of this idea. So let's look at Luke 2, page 500, uh, in, on, uh, starting in verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. 
And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on the earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Or you may know some versions translate it peace, something like peace on earth, and, or peace and goodwill toward man, or something like that. But the ESV translates it peace among those with whom he is pleased. So there is this evening that uh, a classic uh, Christmas text where the, script, uh, the, the uh, shepherds are out watching their flock at night. Uh, presumably a peaceful event for them, and all of a sudden their peace is shattered with this appearing of an angel in the sky. And the angel says to them, the first thing the angel says is, fear not, fear not. There is nothing to fear here, verse 10, because I am bringing good news. Fear not is one of the most common uh, uh, commands in all of Scripture. So we're going to look at this in this season, how God brings peace in the midst of fear, in the midst of our fears. And he says, fear not, because I'm bringing you good news that today in the city of David, a Savior is born. So the promised Messiah, the one who will come and rescue us, is born now, is what the shepherds announce. And they say, this is a sign. You'll go find him. This is what he'll look like, a baby in swaddling cloths. Uh, he'll be in a manger. It would be unusual. That's a feeding trough. Look for a baby baby in a feeding trough, so that baby will stand out for sure. That is the coming one. And then the entire sky lights up with a chorus of angels, a multitude, and here's what they announce, glory to God in the highest. They're saying that this pronouncement that you have just heard is for the glory of God. It is to honor God. It is to reflect the brilliant light of God and who he is and his character that Christ has come. And the result is this, peace on earth, on the earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. So there is the announcement that this one comes and brings peace. He is the messenger of peace. He is the person of peace. He is the prince of peace. He is the one who will initiate, inaugurate peace, and will rule in peace in the lives of his people, and will one day establish a permanent, forever peace among his people in a new heavens and a new earth. And so here he comes bringing peace. He brings peace with God to those who need that, which is everyone. He brings peace with God. He brings peace with others. So this is a time, Christmas, understandably, because of the verse we just read, this is a time people talk about peace. There's an association of Christmas with peace. What does peace mean? What is peace after all? Now, one of the most common definitions of peace, and we're going to look at a few, but one of the most common definitions of peace is um, an absence of conflict, an absence of conflict. It is when there is no conflict. So sometimes peace is defined by what, uh, what, what it isn't. It isn't conflict. And, and Christmas carries with it that idea. And even in the culture, people that don't know Jesus long for peace at this time of the year. That's why, this is, that's why we want to look at this in the Scripture, and we wanna, don't want to just have sort of a sentimental cultural idea about peace uh, but we want to recognize this is what Jesus brings. It's the longing of every heart. There's a historical example of, uh, of peace at Christmas, which I found compelling. Uh, I missed this in my history books. You may know about this. When I took, uh, when I took a world history or U.S. history, it'd be in both. But um, the, the Christmas truce of World War I was an amazing event. Nothing like it's ever happened since. In World War I, on Christmas Day in 1914, so the war was, was early on, uh, let me read you an account of what happened that day. The sounds of rifles firing and shells exploding faded in a number of places along the Western Front in favor of holiday celebrations in the trenches and gestures of goodwill between enemies. On December 7th, uh, 1914, Pope Benedict suggested a temporary hiatus of the war for the celebration of Christmas. 
the warring countries refused to create any official ceasefire, but on Christmas, the soldiers in the trenches declared their own unofficial truce. Starting on Christmas Eve, many German and British troops sang Christmas carols to each other across the lines. And at certain points, the Allied soldiers even heard brass bands joining the Germans in their joyous singing. At the first light of dawn on Christmas Day, some German soldiers emerged from their trenches and approached the Allied lines across no man's land, calling out, Merry Christmas in their enemies' native tongues. I thought, man, that is a bold move. There's no Christmas truce, and you're going to get out and go to the other side and say, Merry Christmas. It might be your last. So that was a bold move. Uh, they, they, they are coming unarmed. They climb out of the trenches. They shake hands with enemy soldiers. The men actually exchange presents of cigarettes and plum puddings. Uh, I read things like buttons, just very small things they gave to one another, and they sang carols. There's even uh, a testimony, there's some testimony, it's a little bit sketchy as I read on, that there may have even been a soccer game played. Actually, there was some kind of makeshift ball they were kicking around, but I don't know if there's an actual game, and I can't report who won. Um, But some soldiers used this short-lived ceasefire for a more somber task, the retrieval of bodies of fellow combatants who had fallen within the no man's uh, land between the lines, so they pulled them out and buried them. The so-called Christmas truths of 1914 came only five months after the outbreak of war in Europe and was one of the last examples of the outdated notion of chivalry between enemies and warfare. It was never repeated. Future attempts at holiday ceasefires were quashed by officers' threats of disciplinary action, but it served as a heartening proof, however brief, that beneath the brutal clash of weapons, the soldiers' essential humanity endured. I read one person say, it was a short piece in a long war. Some say people started firing that night. Some places they didn't fire till New Year's Day. But it was a short piece in a long war. And so there's, there's even in our culture this sense of a, a heart and a longing to know something of peace that's associated with Christmas. Well, that's a meaningful story, but their conflict continued. It was a short piece in a long war. The story of peace that the Bible tells is much deeper than a temporary truce between battling forces. Um, It is much deeper than that. It's much deeper than an absence of conflict. Some people view peace as uh, inner, uh, sort of an inner well-being or a personal tranquility. So there's a sense of personal peace. There's a sense of peace among others. But if we want to get the idea from the Bible of peace, we really have to consider the Hebrew word. The Hebrew word for peace is shalom. And it is, it is a word that, encounter, that, that sort of encapsulates something much briefer than we're not yelling at each other. I mean, much bolder than we're not yelling at each other. Something much greater than I feel at rest internally. It's much more than that. One author called uh, Define Shalom as following. He said, it is the way things ought to be. That was one Christian philosopher's description of defining the word, the way things ought to be. Shalom is, from God's perspective, the way things ought to be. So to understand what shalom is, we really have to go back to the beginning, to Genesis uh, chapter 1. And if you have one of the Bibles in, in the seat in front of you, that's page 1 in the Bible. And in the beginning, we see verse, chapter 1, verse 1, page 1 in the in the pew Bible there, or the chair Bible. I guess we don't have pews, but it's called a pew Bible in a, in a chair. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So at the very beginning, there is God from the beginning, and there are these cosmic waters. There is a lack of form to the earth. There's a void. And God speaks into that void. And with his word, he creates. And what he creates is perfectly balanced. It is perfectly in harmony. It is perfectly at peace. It is the way everything is supposed to be. It is shalom. Uh, What happens is that as he speaks each day, there is this balanced creation. So there is light and dark and it, it is a good day. Everything is good. And then it is earth and sky. 
and then it is land and waters, and then it is creatures of the land and creatures of the sea, and ultimately there is the creation of humanity, the creation of Adam and Eve. And in verse 31 of chapter 1, it says, the Lord saw everything he had made, and behold, it was very good, and there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. So after the sixth day, when all is created, he says, it is all very good. Everything has harmony. Everything has order. Everything has fullness. What was void is now filled. And uh, these, these, th- th- there is this perfect harmony. Tim Keller describes this as follows. He says, God created all things to be beautiful, harmonious, interdependent, knitted, webbed relationship to one another. Just as rightly related physical elements form a cosmos or a tapestry, so rightly related human beings form a community. This interwovenness is what the Bible calls shalom or harmonious peace. And so everything, both the creation uh, both the animal creation, both the human, cre- and the human creation, everything is in order. It is all the way it should be. And then something terrible happens that destroys the peace that was creation. Adam and Eve do the one thing God forbade them from doing, and they choose to eat of the forbidden tree. Tempted by the serpent, they disobey God, and in essence what they do is they declare war on God. If peace, shalom, part of it is the absence of conflict. They enter into conflict by declaring war on God, and peace is shattered. And it's not a minor thing. It's not, well, I kind of lost my peace. It's not a small thing. It changes everything because they come and they act in a way that shows they want to be like God. They want to determine for themselves what is right and what is wrong. They want to live and rule their lives independently of God, not under his subjection, but making their own calls. And this is the very nature of sin. It is, I want to live like I want to live. I want to live doing what I think is right, what I feel is right, what I view is right. And this you can see throughout our world, throughout our society, throughout our own personal lives, causes such destruction because it is a shattering of shalom. It is a destruction of the way God created things to be. And you see that their peace is broken. Their peace between one another is broken. There's a, God gives a curse to them. And, and part of the curse for Eve is that she and Adam will have a relationship that will be characterized by striving. She will strive in her relationship with him. It was perfectly harmonious. She was a helper created for him. Their relationship was conflict-free. But now after sin has entered, after the fall has come, their relationship will know contentiousness, tension, and, 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 and brokenness. The, the peace is shattered with the environment. Adam used to just be able to plant, and crops came up, and it was great. But now God says, you will work by the sweat of your brow, and thorns and thistles will come up out of the ground. So there's a, a breaking of peace with the environment. And there's actually even a loss of the place of peace. They are in Eden, which means paradise, and they are kicked out of paradise. They leave the place of peace, the Garden of Shalom, the only environment where everything is as it is supposed to be. They are cast out from the garden. And we speak of this, this is called the fall, because it is a fall, but it's, it's not a fall. Fall sounds passive. It's not just something that happened to them. It was something that they created by their active opposition to God. And so their, their loss of peace is far greater than anything we can imagine And our loss of peace is the same. And we're the exact same way. We act the same way. We are born with the same temptation. We're made of the same stuff. Our very nature, we're created in the image of God to be sure. But we're also created under Adam's influence with this this longing, this desire to do what we want to do apart from God. And whenever we sin in thought, attitude, action, word. It it takes a step towards destroying peace, towards hindering shalom, the way things ought to be. This happens individually. Uh, This happens 
uh, cosmically in the world. This happens uh, in structures of government. I'm not going to really talk about this in this series, uh, but I would like to at another time. It, it, it affects government. It brings systemic. Sin is systemic in nature. It's not just me and my bad actions. It shows up in cultures uh, where there is oppression and harm done. It shows up in war. And so it happens not just in their life, but as culture is created, it's all broken. There's a lack of peace in all of it. It's not the way things should be. And so when we choose our own course like Adam and Eve, we don't get what we want. We don't get peace. What we get is alienation. And they are alienated from God. They're alienated from one another. They're alienated from their environment. And, and we can see that everywhere we can see that in our own lives. We don't have to look at them and the fall. We can look at our own lives and say, we have situations with friends and family, and some of you just experienced it Thursday or Friday, or maybe the company's still here. Maybe they're in the room. I don't know. But, but some of us are, we have tension with family and friends. Some of us are even estranged from our family and friends. Broken peace. Marriages dissolve and break up with bitterness and hatred and alienation. Our country is divided. There is a racial divide that is just so apparent in our country. And in our world, nation stands against nation. We live in a world where man harms the environment. God's given environment, we harm it, motivated oftentimes by greed with very short-term goals in mind and not viewing long-term generations beyond us and what care for the environment, what difference that can make. So we're at war with one another. We're at war with nations. We're at war with people that think differently than us. We're at war racially in some places. We're at war with the environment. We're just still living in the same way, this alienation which is the exact opposite of shalom. But from the beginning of this story, God makes a promise. And this is so amazing. When he comes to curse, bring a curse to the serpent, this is on page two in the chair Bible there, the Bibles you have. Uh, in verse 15 of chapter three, he says to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Verse 15, I'm sorry, that was 14. 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman. That's contempt or at, you know, uh, strong opposition. Uh, between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So what, what God is saying here is there is coming one that's going to reverse the temptation, the action that the serpent brought here, Satan, the accuser, the deceiver. There's coming one who will affect him, and it's going to be the offspring of this woman. So Eve is going to have, now they may have think it's the, the first child, but it's none of her children. Uh, they may think that's going to be what's going to happen. They're, she's going to have a child that will rescue them. But that's sadly one of her children murders one of her other children. So we just see it even uh, accentuated, elevated in the next generation. But he's saying there will come one who will bruise your head. That is, he will crush the serpent. And in so doing, the crusher will have his heel bruised. So he will be affected. He will be pained. He will suffer from the action, but he will ultimately crush the serpent. So there is this promise that someone is coming that will do something that will affect the work of this Satan, this enemy, this deceiver that will, will stand against him. We know as we read the Bible, it's a mission of, of God's plan to restore peace, to restore shalom. Well, a number of things happen, but, uh, and we'll start moving faster, but in Genesis 12, and we're not going to go like every nine chapters of the Bible all the way through. We do have another service coming. Um, but in chapter 12, we see God taking a big step as he comes to a man named Abram who's later called Abraham. And what he does here is he promises to bring, to restore order, to restore blessing, to bring uh, change, to reverse the curse, really. He says in verse 1, now the Lord said to Abram, uh, I'm sorry, this is on page 5. Did I say that? Page 5 of the Bibles. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from, the country, from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who honors you, uh, who dishonors you, I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God goes to a guy, and he in some ways says, okay, 
uh, we, are, uh, we already kind of started over through Noah, so he's not just saying I'm starting over, but he's saying I'm building a people. I'm going to make you, Abraham, a nation. There's going to be a whole people that are come from you. And what's going to happen from this people is that you're going to bless the entire wor- world, the entire earth. From you, will the entire earth will be blessed. There's going to be a turnaround and a reversal. Something's going to be restored that was lost in the garden. Now, uh, this is glorious good news. Now, this nation becomes Israel, the nation of Israel, and the rest of the Old Testament is the story of this nation of Israel. And this is where we're going to cover large chunks of the Bible in about two minutes. Uh, This nation honors God sometimes and rebels plenty of times. They're very up and down. They're very fickle. They're hot Uh, in pursuit of God in one chapter, and they're worshiping Baal and various idols of the nations that surround them in the next chapter. They're up and down. They're like you and me. And uh, so what God does is he, he begins to build a people that he can reign over. Ultimately, they want a king, so he, he reigns over them through a king. And one of the highlights of the whole Old Testament is, is the, raise, uh, the, the raising up of David, who becomes a king over the people. And uh, David is up and down himself. He's largely a righteous man, though he is a, an immoral man. He's a man of war as well, uh, but he is a, a righteous ruler in so many ways, and there's some glory years for Israel under him, so that David becomes sort of the, the, re- the representative of this ultimate one who will come, the offspring that will crush the serpent's head. He, come, he comes as a picture of a future king. That's why when the angel showed up in Luke uh, two, they, it was clear that they announced in the city of David is born a Savior because this Savior comes after David. This Savior will be in the line of David. This Savior will be like King David, except King David is only a, just only a small representation that points to this king whose rule will be forever. David had temporary peace. There were short periods of time when they didn't have conflict with their enemies, but this one king, like King David, but the greater David, will come and he will rule forever. Now, the other thing God did at various points was when his people disobeyed, uh, he would raise up prophets to speak to them. And when we get to the prophets, we find that God has many promises that he makes about this future king that will come, this prince of peace, this one who will ultimately restore all that was lost. So if you go in your Bible to page 331, or if you're using a a device or a different Bible, Isaiah 9, we read this one already. But this is so powerful that this is Isaiah, one of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament, Talk, giving more data, giving more clues, giving a, a more developed picture of what God is going to do uh, to rescue his people, to restore shalom, which has been broken. Isaiah 9, 2 says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. So he's speaking of a future day when light will shine. We even think about the announcement of the angels, right? They came with the glory of God. The whole sky was lit up. The light was shining on people, even announcing the birth of Christ, who is the light of the world. Verse 5, for ev- uh, no, verse 6, I'm sorry. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace. There will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So Isaiah is telling the people there is going to be one who is born, a son. We know him to be the son of God, Jesus. And he will usher in a government that will be characterized by peace. He will be a wonderful counselor. He will be God himself. He will be an eternal father, or a prince of peace. Um, he is the prince of peace, this Jesus. He is the son of the father, the prince of peace. And of the increase of his government, there end of peace there will be no end. So there will be no end to the reign of peace that he will bring. So this is a comfort to God's people. This is a longing. This is a hope. And when the angels come in Luke 2, this is what they announce. They announce that peace on earth to all those uh, who have experienced, who are under God's favor, blessed by God, peace. Well, how will he bring peace? 
The, the, what will he do? Will he come in with an army? Will he bring military peace by physically destroying all of his enemies? Will he bring peace by uh, force and by might? Will it be peace through strength? That's, that's the expectation at the time of Jesus. That's even their under Roman rule. The people are even expecting that there will come one who will throw off the Roman rule and liberate the people of God. But we find out that's not the means that he will bring peace initially when he comes. On page 356 in your Bible, 356, Isaiah 53, Isaiah 53. Here the image in Isaiah 53, Isaiah doesn't talk about the prince of peace, but he talks about the servant of God, the suffering servant of God. And it's a description of Jesus and if you've, you may be familiar with this passage, you may not. But if you are, you may not have seen how peace is central in this passage. Isaiah 53, page 356, verse 4. For surely, speaking of Jesus, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, transgressions are sins. He was crushed for our iniquities, that's parallel, iniquities is sin. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So isn't that the picture of all of us? We've all gone our own way. We're all doing our own thing. We're all making our own choices. We all by nature live independent of God. That sin, God placed all that sin on his son on the cross. God put our sins up on Jesus, and it says that he crushed him for our sins. He, pier- he was pierced for our transgressions. On him was chastisement means punishment. On him was the punishment that brought us peace. Do you see how God is to restore peace? He takes his own son, and he takes the sins of Adam and Eve and, uh, and us, every, everyone uh, ultimately who trusts in Christ. Our sins are forgiven, but he takes our sins, and he puts Puts them on Jesus. And it says the punishment that brought us peace was through his wounds by which we are healed. So Jesus suffers on the cross. He takes our sin. The Father pours out his judgment and his punishment for our sin on Jesus on the cross. And it is the punishment that brings us peace. God restores peace to sinners by coming and paying the price that those sinners should pay. God comes and personally restores peace because we never could bring peace ourselves. Every ultimate peace initiative will fail. Ultimately, there is no lasting peace in this earth. Just read any history book. Most history books are just the history of one war after another. I I took whole history classes I can remember in college, and it seems like all we had to do was memorize the wars for the test. The whole description of how humankind relates together is the history of war, the history of a shattered shalom. But Jesus comes, and he dies for those sins to bring us peace. And his death and his resurrection sets in motion a peace plan. It sets in motion a a shalom initiative. It sets in motion a reverse of the curse. It sets in motion making all things new. It sets in motion. It's not the way it should be, but it's becoming the way it should be and will be forever. In Jesus's first coming, he begins to initiate peace. He gives us peace with God as a down payment that there's coming a full payment of peace where all the world, all people in the new heavens and new earth will will be at peace with God and will be at peace with one another. Well, how do we know that peace? Turn to page 549. This is Romans 5. In the New Testament, after this is after Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection. Romans 5. Oh, this is so powerful. Romans 5, page 549. So powerful. I know you want to jump and shout hallelujah. You're just a little groggy from Turkey. I know that. But in your heart, you are waving at me. I can feel it. Romans 5, 1. Therefore, since we've been justified, that means made right with God. Since we're right with God by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jump down to verse 10, chapter 5, verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, 
Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. What he's saying is that now, by faith, we receive what Jesus did by faith. We believe in Jesus as the one who came and died for our sin, that he is God himself. He died for our sin and paid the price. So that now, verse 1 says, we now have peace with God. Listen, if you're here today and you do not know Christ, you've not believed in Christ, I don't know, I really don't know what your problems are. You may have health problems, you may have financial problems, you may have relationship problems, uh, you may have job problems, you may have kid problems, you may have spouse problems, uh, you may have house problems, you may have car problems, uh, and in the course of a lifetime, lifetime you'll have all the above uh, problems at some point. But I can tell you this, your greatest problem, which you may not even know, you are a ticking time bomb inside. Your greatest problem is if you do not know Christ, you don't have peace with God. You, you are, the Bible says right here, we just read, if we were enemies of God, verse 10, you have, because of your sin, you are an enemy of God. And that sounds really ugly to say at Christmas time, but it's just the truth. We are enemies of God, but we can be reconciled by his death. We can be joined together with him through reconciliation, through Christ. Christ died so that the two opposing parties could be reconciled. And we're the ones with the offense. We're the ones who sinned. And God says, come, come to me, believe and receive peace with God. So the greatest problem you have is peace with God. It's an eternal problem. And God solves it by sending the Prince of Peace to die for you. And if you believe in him and trust him, you are reconciled to God. But you must believe it for yourself. Christmas is not just a general sense of religious holiday for all those people. It must be for you. That's why when we read Isaiah 9, it says, For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. You've got to be part of that us. He's given for me. Luke 2, the angel said, For to you is born this day in the city of David, who is Christ the Lord. To you, the angels come announcing, this is for you. Isaiah the prophet says, this is for you. So you must get among us. You must come among those and say, I receive him. Listen, I recently had a conversation with a lady who shared with me her testimony of coming to Christ. It's very, it was pretty recent that she came to Christ. And she just, she had done, she had been in church. Uh, she had a lot of exposure to religious things. She had done her study and everything, but she said, one day it dawned on me, it just hit me recently, that Jesus didn't just do this for people, he did this for me. And when I realized this is for me, that's when it changed. And, and she had an experience, it was powerful as she described it to me, where she, everything just looked new when she got that, the, got that reality. The spirit came in her and gave her new life and opened her eyes to this truth. It's not just can we get through the season with minimal conflict? Can we, can we get to Christmas dinner and, and just hope grandpa doesn't go off again this year? Can we just keep everybody happy? And can I just keep my stress level minimal this Christmas season? We're going to talk about all those kinds of things in this series. But ultimately, if we don't get this, none of that matters. Who cares about a nice dinner if we don't know the Prince of Peace and we're not reconciled to God? Who cares if you and aunt so-and-so are getting along if you're not getting along with God? And so we must come and believe in Jesus and receive this wonderful gift of peace with God. That means all your sins are gone. The judgment of God is off you. The wrath of God is off you. When you die and you meet God personally, you will be welcomed into his presence because you're with Christ, his son. You will never know the judgmental anger of God towards your sin because Jesus took it for you. That's peace. And when we receive that peace, that can inform and empower every other peace in our life. That's where we start. We don't start with, I'm anxious, I'm fearful, I'm at odds with someone. We don't start with, I'm angry, I have hatred, I'm bitter. We start with the Prince of Peace. We don't start just fixing those problems. We start with, who is he, the Prince of Peace, and how can I receive him to forgive me of those sins and to change my attitude? Well, this is what he says. Uh, I, I'm going to move a little bit. I'm going to move a little bit quickly. Uh, you, you can write these down. Uh, I'm not going to go over them. But in John 14, if you're taking notes, John 14 verses 25 to 27, and John 16:7. This is what Jesus actually says to his disciples. It's on page 526 of the Bible. If you don't own a Bible and you're looking through that, you just take that with you. Go to page 526 and read John 14 and 16 this afternoon. 
But this is what he says. As Jesus says, I'm, he's with the disciples, and he said, it's better that I go, because if I go, I'm going to send the Spirit, and he's going to be a helper. And, and then in John 16, he says, uh, peace be with you. Just as the Father has sent me, I have sent you. So he tells them that the, this helper will bring peace to them. He, he uses that language. This helper will bring perfect uh, peace ultimately, but in the short term, he will bring peace to us, and he's, he's enabling us to return to God's peace. The Holy Spirit is the one who gives us an inner peace. The Holy Spirit is the one who produces the fruit of peace, the, uh, the, the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, the Holy Spirit is the one who brings rest to our striving. The Holy Spirit is the one who brings order to chaos. Think about creation and shalom at creation and how everything is balanced and harmonious. Uh, so it is the Holy Spirit that brings that sense of harmony to our lives. It is the Holy Spirit that empowers us to be peacemakers. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. Jesus says, peace I give you. Now, as the Father sent me, I sent you. In John 20, that's what he says. So I'm sending you out to bring peace. It is the Holy Spirit that empowers us for that. And so the question that I want to ask you at this season is, do you know that kind of peace? Would you say, okay, to be honest, on a daily basis, I would say in my heart, you may have a busy life, you may have a bunch of kids, you may have all kinds, who knows, you may have all kinds of activities. So I'm not asking about do you do nothing or are you active? That's irrelevant. Do you in your soul know peace? Would you say my life is characterized by maybe busyness on the outside, but rest on the inside? Are you, are you, do you live a life where you're agitated Worried, fearful, or do you live a life where the Spirit of God is producing a peace and a rest in your heart? Do you know that kind of peace? Do you know the experience of a still soul? The psalmist says, I have, I've quieted my soul. I'm like a weaned child, content and at rest before God. Do you know that in an increasing way? Can you say, hey, I am experiencing more peace this year than I was last year or five years ago or 10 years ago, whenever you met the Lord. I'm experiencing an increasing peace. My hunch is that many of us would say, no, I don't know that. Matter of fact, I've got snatches of peace. I've got like the Christmas truce peace. So there was that day that we sang songs and, and traded buttons and played soccer. But by that night, I was at war again, man. So I know these glimpses, I know these moments, and this side of the new heavens and new earth, none of us will know this perfectly, but we can know this in an increasing way, and that's what we're focusing on Advent. The Prince of Peace has come, and his reign has begun, and I believe we need this especially in this time. It is ironic. I mean, it is that this time of year where we're singing songs about peace are the most harried uh, you know, freak out time of the year, the most panic, the most pressure that we often self-created pressure, but pressure, anxiety, worry, uh, psychologists and psychological studies would show that, that depression at this time of the year rises above all other times of the year, the season of peace. And yet we know an aching and a longing in our soul and, and find ourselves, find ourselves a lot of times feel like we're on the outside looking in. God wants us to experience his peace, but it's often the farthest things from our life. The frayed relationships that we ignore during the year, all of a sudden they kind of come up during the holiday times. Sometimes people we don't see except this time of the year, and it's this time. Uh, so our relationships can feel frayed. Our budgets are stretched. Uh, we're chasing some idyllic serenity. We're chasing some, you know, Hallmark Christmas movie experience. And, uh, and it doesn't, doesn't occur. It doesn't happen. We only find peace in him. So in this series, I want to talk about peace and stress. I want to talk about peace and conflict. I want to talk about peace and our fears. I want to talk about peace and being peacemakers to others that, with whom we may have broken relationships or where we see broken relationships, somehow we can offer peace and serve others. But it begins by turning to him and, and realizing that he came to restore all shalom and calls us to his mission. Let's, let's close with this. I said I'd go to the end of the Bible. Let's go to page 603 
uh, Revelation 21. This is so excited. You know, it started in an idyllic garden. It started with perfect harmony, page 603, Revelation 21, and, and it ultimately happens again. This is where we're headed. We are headed towards peace. We are headed towards a day when everything that causes a disruption to shalom, everything that causes division and hatred and anger and offense is gone. This is where we're moving. This is so encouraging. And so when we talk about Advent and a longing for the coming, this is, this is what we're, we're longing ultimately for him to come again. We're longing for the Prince of Peace to reign in our hearts right now. But we're also longing for this day. Verse 21, verse 1 of verse chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. That's the day. Everything that's mentioned there, that everything he had to wipe a tear from an eye, everything there was a disruption of peace. Everything there was a hurt. Everything there was an absence of shalom, uh, death, uh, mourning, crying, pain. That's all passed away. That's where we are headed. And so we long for that day and we say, Lord, come Lord Jesus quickly. And in the meantime, Lord, enable us to experience the peace that is yours. Enable us to live in that peace. Enable us to bring that peace to others. Uh, enable us to, be particip uh, to participate in our culture and in our society as peacemakers where we have influence in institutions, uh, in schools or government or, loca or local uh, municipalities. May we seek to bring peace, the peace of Christ today. Even though it's only coming one day at Revelation 21, it doesn't mean that we're not to be ambassadors of reconciliation today, ambassadors of peace even now. So we're called to do that as well. So how can I approach this? Because we just did, first page to the last page of the Bible, we skipped 99% of the Old Testament. But we, but we covered the Bible today in peace. Started with peace, returning to peace, Prince of Peace in between, initiating the peace initiative, and by his Holy Spirit cultivating peace in us today. How can, so what do I do with all that? I mean, what, what do I do? I, I got a phrase for you. This is what I want to call you to this, this Advent season. Pause for peace. Pause for peace. I want to challenge you. It's 28 days until Christmas Day. To each day, pause for peace. And in that pause, read some scripture and pray for peace. And you may have other things to pray for, but pray for the peace of God in your life. Pray for the peace of God in those with whom you relate. Pray for those who don't know Christ. They would experience the peace of God. Pray for the peace of God in our church. You may want to pray for national matters as well or international matters. Certainly can pray for the world. But, but take a little bit of time each day. And I want, to, I want to throw out a challenge that in the next 28 days, that each day we would take 15 minutes and pause for peace. To, to get the Scripture, read the Scripture, encounter God's presence and power. Because there's no shortcut. There's no way that we, that we make it through Christmas season is celebrating and enjoying the peace of Christ in our hearts apart from the Word of God. It cannot happen. We say, 15 minutes, wow, man, I read like 30 or 45. Wow, we're impressed. Jesus loves you. But many of us, many of us read once a week, twice a week, not at all. Many of us. So let's enter into a focus season and say, okay, I'm going to give 15 minutes a day starting tomorrow. What do I read? Well, uh, there's 28 days between now and Christmas Day. You could read a chapter of Matthew the day and know the, know the Prince of Peace, a chapter a day, now, if you think I could never do, I will at least miss four times, then read Luke. There's 24 chapters, you got four misses. <laughs> Let's just be realistic. Go on, I'm really not even that good. Mark's got 16, okay? We've got the beginner plan. What, I would rather you get 16 days than, than say I got to do Matthew 28 and just tank on day two and say I'm out of here, okay? That's something you could do. Um, 
you could, uh, you could read an Advent devotional. If you have the Bible app, I looked yesterday, there's a, there's a handful, six different devotional readings on Advent, daily readings in the Bible app. So you could read there. We have a book at the table, which I was supposed to tell you about. Do we have anybody back there? Yes, Robert, thank you. I was supposed to tell you about it at the start of my sermon. I did not. We have a book by Tim Chester uh, that is called, and we have a book by Tim Keller. It's Timothy Christmas. Okay, Tim Chester wrote a book called The One True Light, Daily Readings for Advent from the Gospel of John. It's 24 readings. So you could start tomorrow. You could start on December 1st. And what I love about this one is it's out of John, so it's, it's the nature of Christ, but it's not all the Christmas story like Matthew and Luke. So we don't get nativity scenes and, and we don't get uh, wise men. Uh, it's more just focusing on the character of Jesus uh, from the Gospel of John. What does John tell us about Advent? So you could pick up that book out there and uh, you could read that. So those are all things you could do. Um, you could go through Prepare Him, is that what's called? The children's uh, family devotional we have, Prepare Him Room. Uh, you could go through that. But just something that says, I'm not just going to coast into Christmas and shop and do this. And I'm not just going to coast. I'm going to focus every day. I'm going to take a few minutes in the morning or at lunch hour or in the evening. And I am good. maybe you listen, maybe you get the Bible app and you can listen to a chapter being read to you and focus on that. Um, and then pray. But I, that, that's something you could actually do that would make a difference, especially if you're not reading at all. It would make a huge difference in your life. You do that for 28 days and then talk to me at Christmas and, and tell me that the Lord didn't sustain you or strengthen you in some way by his word. He will do it. He's faithful to do that. So I'm going to challenge you uh, for that. Also, if you want to give a book to someone, uh, we have another book out there that's really good. It could be good for you too. This is the Tim Keller book. He just wrote this. It's called Hidden Christmas, The Surprising Truth Behind the Birth of Christ. This is, Tim Keller is my favorite apologist, uh, modern day apologist. Um, that, that is one who makes a re- gives a reason for the faith. And in this book, he explains, especially to skeptics, uh, the message of Christmas and why it's true. So it, it's, it, 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 for someone who's, you don't have to be brilliant, but you have to at least want to read a little bit and think a little bit, not a ton. But if, that's, if there's a person like that on your Christmas list or yourself, you could read that, read a section of that each day and look up the scriptures. You could do that as well. So we have that for you that could be a tool for you this, uh, this Christmas, the hidden, hidden Christmas. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.